Hey, I'm Cameron, and thanks for checking out this message today. We're glad that you are here and would love to get connect with you and your family. One easy way you can do that is to text River Connect to 97000. You can also visit our website at theriverchurch.cc to learn more about us and some of our upcoming events. Lastly, if you would like to give to the River Church today, you can text the amount that you want to give to 84321, or you can head to our website and click the Give tab at the top of the page. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's message. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 27 for the next few weeks. So let's pick up there in just a moment. But let's kind of set the stage, the context, and the timeline of what is happening Jesus has just been arrested. For the three years prior, Jesus has become a very famous rabbi, teacher, miracle worker. The crowds are beginning to swell around Jesus into the thousands. To the point where when Jesus entered Jerusalem, people began to impromptu, they began to form a parade around Jesus. And there were those who would run into town and ahead of the parade, and they would announce that Jesus was coming. And so people would come out of their homes and businesses, and they began to break off palm branches, and they began to wave them and say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were lavishing on Jesus these terms of king, of Messiah, of prophet, of the one that they had been waiting for. Within just a few days, the crowds would disperse and Jesus would be arrested. He would be praying in a small garden called Gethsemane. And in that garden, he would begin to feel the weight of what was coming. A crowd came in that night not to hail Jesus as king, but to seize him like a common criminal. They were led by Judas, one of Jesus' friends. The crowd was uncertain what Jesus even looked like, which is shocking to think about, to the point where they had agreed with Judas, you're going to have to kiss him so that we know who it is. And so Judas came to Jesus, and Jesus looks at him and says, friend, seems to be the final appeal for Judas' soul. Jesus says, will you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And Judas kisses Jesus, and the crowds seize Jesus. Jesus asks him the question, you you show up here with swords and clubs to arrest me like a common criminal. He says, every day I was with you in the temple teaching, you didn't do this. But there they were in the cloak of night arresting Jesus, and they began a parade to different courts, if you will, that night. They began by taking Jesus to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest and part of the family of high priests, the kind of the chief leader in Judaism. And they took him before Caiaphas and the council, and they began to question Jesus. If you'll get Matthew chapter 26, just a chapter before where we'll be, They begin to ask Jesus these questions. They begin to try to trap Jesus as they they had for years prior. In verse 67, you see that the questioning is no longer just friendly. It becomes very hostile. 
Verse 67, then they spit in his face and they struck him and some slapped him. The one who had done miracles, the one who had fed the poor, the one who had taught incredible things now is standing before the religious leaders and they are spitting in his face. They are hitting him and some are slapping Jesus. They would leave Caiaphas' house and they would go in sequence to some different places. First, they would go to Pilate, the Roman governor's home. And he found out kind of the story, the situation, who Jesus was a little bit. And so he kicked the can, so to speak, over to Herod. And Herod was kind of a puppet king. He was kind of this fake king of the Jews. And Herod was interested in meeting Jesus, but really only to make a mockery of him. Finally, when Jesus would say nothing to Herod, they sent him back to Pilate's home. And this is throughout the night. Look at Matthew chapter 27 and verse 1. Matthew says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. So this is escalated from let's discredit Jesus to let's kill Jesus. Verse 2, they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So this massive crowd shows up who Pilate has already seen once. And maybe the crowd hadn't swelled to the size that it is now. And they bring Jesus, a man that they've spit upon, beaten, mocked. And they're asking Pilate for permission to kill Jesus. And so Pilate begins to ask some questions and the crowd just begins to escalate. It becomes more violent. It becomes louder. It becomes more vicious as the moments go on. And so you kind of sense in Pilate, not really a, I want to know really what's going on here. Pilate becomes more of let's manage this crisis. He wants to disperse the crowd. He wants to appease the crowd. He wants to calm the crowd and avoid a riot. So Pilate questions Jesus, and he begins to understand on a surface level what is happening. Look at Matthew chapter 27 and verse number 18. Here's an insight into Pilate's thought process. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him, him meaning Jesus, up. So he's realizing the religious leaders have stirred up the crowd And one of the motivations is because they are envious of Jesus' influence. They're envious of Jesus' teaching. So Pilate has all intention of beating Jesus and releasing Jesus. So he chooses a strategy that backfires. I imagine he thinks in his mind, or maybe he asks an aide, who's the worst criminal we have in jail right now? And a man by the name of Barabbas comes up. Barabbas was a murderer, and more than just a murderer, he was a violent insurrectionist. So he was condemned by Rome, but also he wasn't helping out his people because he was just stirring up all kinds of problems. And so Pilate has an idea, particularly around this Jewish festival that's happening. And so he says to him, listen, there's a tradition we have 
Around this time that I release a prisoner, kind of as an act of grace, as an act of Roman mercy, how about I release to you Barabbas or Jesus? And it backfires. And the crowds, in an irrational way, begin to chant, give us Barabbas and kill Jesus. Pilate realizes there's no winning with these people. And so finally, in a symbolic action, he washes his hands in front of them, and he says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And the people cry out, his blood be on us and on our children. It's a vicious night that has bled into a vicious morning. Look at verse 26, Matthew 27, 26. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Scourging meant that Jesus would have been tied to a post or a stump his clothing removed, and a very proficient torturer would have taken a whip, sometimes called a cat of nine tails, and that soldier would have begun to whip Jesus across the back in those strips of leather, sometimes having bone or metal or stone in them, would wrap around Jesus and dig into his flesh. So here Matthew says, having scourged Jesus, we just have to pause there. Because when we understand that, it really will take your breath away understanding the crowd arrested Jesus. The crowd chanted for Jesus' blood. The crowd is pressuring a Roman prefect, a Roman governor, into doing something he knows is wrong, something he doesn't want to do, but something he feels like is politically expedient for him to avoid a riot. And now the violence just bursts out. It's no longer spitting and slapping and hitting. It is murderous. Verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him and put, him in a, put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. So these Roman soldiers who are part of this battalion hate the Jews. They hate their military assignment in Israel. They hate their military assignment there in Jerusalem. And so now there's a man who claims to be king of the Jews. So these Romans are not thinking other than, we're going to torture this guy so that every Jew in Jerusalem looks and goes, if they'll do that to the supposed king, what would they do to me? They mock Jesus. Verse 30, they spit on him. As I was reading that, I thought, and I'm not trying to be disgusting here or sick or gross, but the amount of times Jesus must have been spit upon is just disgusting and horrible. 
They took the reed in Jesus' hand, meant to kind of be a symbol of a, a kind of a false symbol of a king. They took it out of his hand and they struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, and when they came to the place called Golgotha, which is called the place of the skull, just to pause there, there's a place in Jerusalem uh, near what's known as the Garden Tomb, where they believe is Golgotha. Not 100% certain, but really they would take a prisoner outside of the walls of the city, symbolic of rejection. You're kicked out of this town, get out of here, and we're going to kill you outside of the city. They paraded Jesus out there, and a man named Simon of Cyrene, an African, carries Jesus' cross to the place of the skull. There's some... There's a rock formation there that kind of, if you step back, you can see kind of the inset of eyes and nose and maybe the faint look of a skull. Perhaps that's where the name came from. When Jesus is there, they crucify him. Now, I love the old hymn, The Old Rugged Cross. Maybe you know that hymn. and It's a beautiful song. I listened to it this morning and sang it. But the opening line is a little misleading because the idea of on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. So for me, when I imagine that, it's not, okay, I'm in a, you know, North America and I imagine it in Asia, in Jerusalem. It's on a hill far away. So off in the distance on a hillside is the cross and it's just kind of way out there. But the reality is the cross of Jesus wasn't on a hill and it wasn't far away. What was common is that a criminal would be killed on the cross and and Rome had done this by the time of Jesus to tens of thousands of Jews would be killed at eye level. So it wasn't even elevated to a distance where you couldn't see the person. Then it wasn't on a hill far away where there was some sort of privacy. Rome would line the streets entering a city with crucified men, women, and sadly children. And it was a statement to everyone who would come into the town, Rome rules, and this is where you'll go if you defy that. Jesus is taken out of the city. And he's not taken off to a distant hill. He's taken outside the city to Golgotha. And at eye level, he is placed on a cross. Nails are beaten between his hands to attach him to the cross. His feet would be put one over top of the other. And a nail would be viciously, brutally beaten through his feet until the nail would attach his body to a cross. Sometimes poetically called a tree. When they attached him to the cross, there wasn't one specific way Rome followed through on crucifixion. They were quite proficient at experimenting. 
So much so that the word that we know as excruciating was a word invented to describe the suffering of the cross. So maybe you go through physical pain and you say this is excruciating in that moment, not to diminish your pain in one way, not, not at all. But think about that word excruciating. That's meant to bring us back to the understanding of what Jesus suffered physically on the cross. When they crucified him, verse 34 says, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. So this was meant to deaden the pain. Think about the cruelty of this. This is meant to deaden the pain so that the victim would live longer. When he tasted, he could not drink it. So Jesus refused to deaden the pain or his senses at all. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. So they took his garment, they began to gamble over it at the foot of the cross. Verse 36, then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Again, now, if that's on a distant hillside, you might go, ah, that might be Jesus over there. But the fact is, this is eye level. His mother is there. We know that from the Gospel of John. Some of his friends are there witnessing this. And his enemies are there. They know for certain who they're killing. So much so, they put a name tag on it. This is Jesus, everybody. The king of the Jews. The Romans did that. It upset the Jews. But they all knew who was on the cross. It's broad daylight. This isn't in the distance. This isn't at this point in the dark. To humiliate Jesus even more, verse 38, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Some estimates say in the millions would arrive in Jerusalem for this uh, holiday season, this Passover. Millions is probably too strong, but in the hundreds of thousands, possibly. So lots of pilgrims, lots of religious pilgrims are walking by and seeing a man being crucified, dying, suffering, the sign above him, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. That's his crime. That's what he is being charged with. Criminals are on either side of him to make it look even worse for him. They're mocking him. People walking by are mocking him. The religious leaders are there, verse 41, and they are mocking him. They're repeating what Jesus said. Verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. So there's been no doubt about who Jesus claimed to be. And there's no doubt that the person on the cross is Jesus. There are some religions that would say Jesus didn't go to the cross. But we know for a fact this is not at night. This is in broad daylight in the morning. And Jesus is being killed. The religious leaders are there. Some of Jesus' faithful followers are there. Some of Jesus' enemies are there. The Romans are there. It is a vicious sight. And then something extraordinary, miraculous, shocking, startling happens. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth. 
Now, time was measured a little bit different than the way we would read a clock. Some of you would use a clock like normal. Some of you would use military time. When the Bible says here the sixth hour, the day started at 6 a.m. So we believe, looking at Mark chapter 15 and verse 25, that Jesus went to the cross around 9 a.m. So all of those trials, all of those beatings happened prior to that. Around 9 a.m., Jesus is put to the cross. So for three hours, three hours, broad daylight, Jesus is suffering. And then at the sixth hour, Matthew says here in verse 45, until the ninth hour, so noon until 3 p.m., the Bible says here that the land went Dark. There was darkness over all the land. And Matthew is not alone in recording this. Mark records it. And Mark is based on the eyewitness account of Peter. And so Mark says in Mark chapter 15, verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Luke, who was a historian, a doctor, a very professional man, he says in his gospel in Luke and then the sequel, Acts, He says, I sat down with eyewitnesses because I wanted to hear it firsthand. I wanted to know that what I was getting was the facts, and I wanted to put it into sequential order. Luke says it was now the sixth hour, so noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. He said, while the sun's light failed. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this incredible miracle, this shocking thing that happened at noon. The sun is at its highest point, and all of a sudden, lights out. It's dark. It's black. I imagine it had to be terrifying. We know that it was not an eclipse because at that time of year, an eclipse is impossible with the position of the moon. Also, an eclipse doesn't last for three hours. Also, an eclipse is not complete darkness. So this is a divine miracle of God. It's noon and it's lights out. No no one brought torches. It wasn't like, let me pull out my phone and turn on my flashlight. This is crazy. These people are traveling into a town and boom, lights out. Like it had to startle people. Like people are now groping around in the dark like I wasn't prepared for darkness for three hours in the middle of the day. So what's happening? What's going on in this moment? Hold your spot in Matthew 27 because we'll come back there and go to the left and go to Matthew chapter number four. We're going to run through a quick sequence of scriptures. If you've got a pen and paper, you can write them down. You can jot them down in your phone. But we see darkness in the scripture used in different ways. Matthew chapter 4 and verse number 16. And this is a quotation from the book of Isaiah talking about darkness. And I'm not going to lie, folks, as I was studying this week, I sang, Hello, darkness, my old friend. About 500 times, okay? So I gift that to you. 
Matthew chapter 4, verse 16. So this is the coming of the Messiah, and it says in verse 16, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. So think about this. This is so wonderful about the scripture. These events, and particularly the New Testament, happened 2,000 years ago. So much has changed, and yet people are really still the same. And so there's some beautiful illustrations that still work that we all understand. One of them that we all get is light and dark. And so it's a spiritual thing here that's being talked about. So you have humanity being talked about in darkness and in light. So people dwelling in darkness. You can just jot this one down. But Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 18 speaks to this as well. And it uses the word darkened. Ephesians chapter 4 in verse number 18. The scripture says this, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness, due to their hardness of heart. So darkness is sometimes the idea of spiritual ignorance. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 8 and verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. So darkness meaning I don't understand. I can't grasp this idea. So spiritual darkness. Go to the right and go to the gospel of John. John chapter number 3. So darkness in the scripture is a way of conveying spiritual ignorance Darkness is also a way of understanding wicked behavior, immoral behavior, sin. John chapter 3, verse number 19. So this is right after the most famous verse in the Bible, God so loved the world. Look at verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world And people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So another way of understanding light and dark is wicked behavior. Their works are darkness. The scripture speaks about not just works being dark, but hearts being dark. So everyone, verse 20, who does wicked things, hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. It's not just talking about nighttime is when only people sin or do wicked things. It's talking about concealment. We don't want to be seen. We don't want to be known. We want to hide those things. Then there is a way of understanding darkness. Go to the right and go to Ephesians chapter number 6. So we have darkness being understood as kind of ignorance, spiritual ignorance. Jesus would even use a phrase from the Old Testament, the blind leading the blind. If a blind person is leading a blind person, they're both going to get in trouble. 
It's not to insult anyone who can't see, but it's just a way of understanding spiritual blindness. Someone who doesn't know can't lead anybody else to know what they themselves do not know. So spiritual ignorance, then wicked behavior. Ephesians chapter number 6, verse number 11 Paul is writing here, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So the tricks, the wiles, the tactics, the gamesmanship of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Turn just a couple books to the right. Go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. So in Ephesians, we see the phrase, this present darkness, and that is orchestrated by the prince of darkness, who operates in, verse number 13 there, Colossians chapter 1, the domain of darkness. So darkness, spiritually speaking, in the scripture it's used to illustrate spiritual ignorance, lack of understanding, clarity, wicked behavior. We also see Satan spoken of as ruling in the domain of darkness, ushering in this present darkness. Now you can leave the New Testament and go back to the second book of the Bible, to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter number 10. The story that we're jumping into here is the story of Moses and the plagues of judgment that God brought against Egypt. And the ninth plague is darkness. I just want to read it real quick. Then, so verse 21, so Exodus 10, 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Look at this description here. A darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see each other, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. So this was darkness over all of Egypt for three days, except where the people of Israel lived, a land called Goshen. So this was not a global darkness. This was a regional darkness for three days. But it was so dark, people didn't leave their house. This was a divine judgment of God in the form of darkness. Now go to the right, jumping forward quite a bit, to the book of Isaiah. We're going to go through a quick sequence here, and I want you to see these. Isaiah chapter number 13.
So oftentimes, darkness is symbolic of God's divine judgment. Isaiah chapter number 13, verse number 10. says, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. You can leave there, go to the right to a short book called Joel. Joel chapter number 2 and verse number 1. If you're not super familiar with those books of the Bible, that's okay. Take your time. Joel chapter number 2 and verse number 1. Joel is speaking of a day of judgment called the day of the Lord. Verse 1, I love hearing your pages turn. If you have a phone, that's great. But pages let me know that you're working. You're trying to find it, so way to go. I was, uh, we're going to go to Amos in just a moment. And uh, I thought Amos got cut out of my Bible. I swear to you, I was looking for it so much. I was like, where is Amos again? I'm sorry about that, buddy. And then I thought about famous Amos, and it all went downhill from there. Anyways... Joel chapter number 2 and verse (laughs) 1. It's the best laugh all day. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness like blackness there is spread upon the mountains. Go to the very next book to Amos. Amos chapter number 5. So we have some constellations Named there, Amos chapter 5 and verse number 8. So God made the, the order of the stars is what Amos is conveying. It says, and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens, darkens the day into night. Now one more in Amos. Go over to Amos chapter number 8. Verse number 9. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I want you to keep reading because I want you to see Amos here. The, The consistency, the beauty of the Bible being one beautiful story from start to finish Look at what Amos is saying hundreds of years before the events we read in Matthew 27. 
The sun is going to go down at noon, darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs and lamentations. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son. Go to the right a little more to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 1. Don't get it confused with Zechariah, but Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter number 1. Verse 14. Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 14, the prophet says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. Sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Now let's go back to Matthew 27. So throughout the Bible, darkness associated with spiritual ignorance, blindness, lack of clarity. We see Satan described in terms of darkness, the present darkness, the domain of darkness. But we also see that darkness is often associated with God's divine judgment. So what is happening in Matthew 27? Jesus is being crucified Three hours broad daylight, suffering, being mocked upon, spit upon, insulted. While he is suffering, excruciating pain. And all of a sudden at noon, the lights go out. What's happening? All three, the the human elements of darkness, meaning wicked works, ignorance, the domain of darkness, and the divine judgment of God are colliding. They are smashing into each other at the cross of Christ. One of my favorite, and I would say one of the most ominous passages of Scripture in the Bible is found in Luke chapter number 22. You don't have to turn there. But every time I read it, it's just such a, makes me in awe of Jesus even more. When he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's nighttime. And they show up with swords and clubs and torches. And, and as I noted what Jesus already said, but when they go to arrest him, Jesus says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. Like you had lots of opportunity to arrest me and you didn't do it. And then Jesus looks him square in the face in my mind and he says in verse 53, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So what is the cross? Humanity's darkest day. Because what's happening? Ignorance. The very son of God, the one who was sent to be the savior of the world, 
humanity is spitting upon, the one who created them, the one who loves them, the one who knows them, is being insulted by the very people he's created. The very hands that Jesus shaped are slapping him across the face. The very tools that Jesus invented, created, are being used as instruments of pain and torture. It's humanity's darkest day, the most ignorant day, the most foul, evil, moral crime that has ever been committed on planet earth. That is colliding with some other things. It's colliding with the domain of darkness. I think Jesus was speaking to the crowd that day in Luke chapter number 22 when he says, this is your hour in the power of darkness. But I also think Jesus had spiritual eyes to see that Satan was beginning to celebrate something he thought was a victory. This is your hour and the power of darkness. But I love what Jesus says. It's so hopeful. It's almost as if Jesus says you get an hour. Like he is light and in him is no darkness. He is the light come into the world. And Jesus, if you've ever seen uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, if you've ever read it, I read the passage this morning where Aslan goes to the stone table. And it's almost as if Jesus, like the the visual that Lewis creates in, in Chronicles of Narnia, just surrenders and he says, okay, you get an hour. But that's all you get. You're, you're not getting one more second than is needed. And Jesus surrenders for those moments to the power of darkness. But something else is happening. The darkness of humanity and the domain of darkness are colliding with a much more mighty force. The judgment of God the wrath of God. Hold your spot in Matthew 27 and go back earlier in Matthew to Matthew 8. Matthew chapter number 8 and verse 12. And if you haven't been following along, it's not too late. Take out your phone, download a Bible app. We have 400 more scriptures to go. (laughs) Not really. But maybe. It's a mystery. Matthew chapter 8, verse number 12. Jesus speaks of eternal judgment. He talks about people in verse 11 coming from all over the globe, all cultures and languages coming into the kingdom and sitting at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Go to the right to Matthew 22. Working our way back to Matthew 27, but Matthew 22. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. This is a parable in chapter 22. Look at verse 13. Jesus is talking about, again, judgment. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. 
In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A couple more chapters to the right, Matthew 25, verse 30. This chapter is all about the end of time, judgment before a holy God. Matthew 25 and verse 30. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now back to Matthew 27. The darkness of humanity is smashing against colliding with, and those two working in tandem, the domain of darkness. But the sky goes black for three hours, and in the darkness, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for three hours, Jesus is plunged into more than just a physical darkness. One of the things we need to see at the cross, and we talked about it in the Lord's Supper, Keaton talked about it, we need to see the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. We need to see the physical elements of the cross. But there is a layer beyond there that we need to see. What Jesus is suffering in the blackness, the darkness, the despair of Calvary is the judgment and wrath of God. When he's in the garden, he says, Father, if there's any way possible, take this cup from me. He wasn't talking about the cup of wine and gall that they were going to have him drink on a sponge, on a stick. That's not what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about the symbolic cup of God's wrath that he was going to have to drink till the cup was empty. And it horrified Jesus. Three times he prayed, Father, if there's any way possible, let that cup, let that job, let what I have to drink, if there's any other way, let's do it that way, but not my will, thy will be done. Three times he returns to that prayer, and now he is on the cross, and the cup of God's fury, of God's holy anger and wrath over sin is being poured out on Christ. The way to understand it is that Jesus is plunged into the darkness, the blackness of hell in those three hours. It's such a sight, I believe, that humanity could not even, could not stomach to see it, could not comprehend to see it. And so God, even in his grace, clouds it, shrouds it with blackness. And there is Jesus in the blackness, the darkness alone, suffering for sin that he did not commit. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. So Jesus in those moments is becoming sin and God is crushing his only begotten son. The fiery fury of hell is placed on Jesus in those moments. Christ suffers the wrath of God for sin. Peter says the righteous for the unrighteous. Here's why. That we might become the righteousness of God. Peter says that he, meaning Jesus, might bring us 
to God. Earlier in the book in chapter two, he says he has called us out of darkness. Out of what? Spiritual ignorance, times of darkness, moral depravity, sin that we know is consuming our life. Jesus is calling us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And here's what Christ has done for us. Christ has suffered on the cross the wrath of God, the hell of God. Here's why. So you don't have to. That's the marvelous news, the the great news, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God creates us and loves us, but we rebelled against him and we love sin. The Bible says we've turned to our own way, but the Lord God has laid on him the iniquity, the sin, the perversion, the rebellion of us all. And so in that darkness, the sky goes black. It is a miracle, but it's a miracle that in that moment, Jesus is suffering for sin and he's paying the penalty for sinners. He dies and he rises again. It's interesting to me that Jesus' birth was accompanied with great lights and angels and his death was accompanied by blackness and darkness and horror. But it was so that you and I might have a way to escape the eternal penalty of our sin. Some of you are Pentecostal, some of you are not. You didn't know what to do there. Here's the deal. If you're here and you know the Lord Jesus, that is our hope. That is our anchor. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be rallying at the cross and looking at these different miracles in awe of what Jesus, with his hands nailed to a cross, do you know who was doing the miracle? Jesus. Do you know who was suffering for our sin? Christ. Do you know who made a way for us to be saved from eternal darkness, from eternal separation from God in a a place called hell? Jesus made that. And if you're here and you know Christ, that's why we sing and that's why we take the Lord's Supper and that's why we gather together and that's why we celebrate because Christ has rescued us from darkness and ignorance and, and an empty, hollow life that leads to eternal separation from God in eternal darkness, a place where Jesus describes is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a horrible thing to talk about. So if you're sitting here, you might be watching online at some point, maybe live this morning or in the future, and you don't know Christ You have to, in your mind, in your heart, you need to run to the cross of Christ. That's Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Jesus, you're dying in my place. You're righteous, and I'm unrighteous. You are sinless, and I am so consumed with sin. You are dying in my place, and so I come to you, and I just turn from my sinful life, and I turn to you, and I confess you as Lord, and I believe that you did die in my place. I believe you rose from the dead. Listen, that's the only reasonable response to the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, is to turn from sin and race to Jesus as Lord and owner and king and boss and captain of your life to turn from all these other empty, hollow things. So if you're here and you know the Lord, we're going to sing in just a moment. We're going to worship Jesus. And I hope that from the front to the back of this room, 
you will stay engaged in worshiping the Lord Jesus for what he's done for you. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He rescued us. So we worship him. And now what happens? We walk in the light as he is in the light. We're not afraid of the spiritual darkness anymore. We've been called out of spiritual ignorance. And we don't fear eternal darkness because our destination is eternity with God in heaven. That's the work that Jesus Christ did for us. And so that's why we celebrate it. And maybe you're here and you don't know the Lord. Notice I didn't say you are religious or churchy or moral. Maybe you're here and you have never called out to Jesus to save your soul. You've never repented of your sin and believed in Jesus. The Bible says if you hear his voice, don't ignore it. Today is the day of salvation. Maybe you've been part of this church or another church for a long time, but you've never been part of Christ. You've never come to know Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. You can call out to him right now to be saved, to be forgiven of your sins, to be pardoned of all of your iniquity, as the Bible calls sin. You can be cleansed, you can be forgiven, you can stand before God pardoned of all of your sins. You can be redeemed, you can be saved, you can be certain of your eternal destination. I'm going to ask you across the room if you just bow your heads and close your eyes. God willing, a moment right now that if you don't know the Lord right now is that moment where you can call out to Jesus. There's no magic prayer. There's no magic posture. You may not even know Romans 10, 9, and that's okay, but that's the prayer, that's the response to the death and resurrection of Jesus. You confess Jesus as Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and you'll be saved. In a moment, in an instant, you'll be brought from darkness to light. And maybe right now you hear the voice of God. The still, small, tender, kind, compassionate voice of God speaking to your heart, drawing you to salvation. Oh, please don't reject that. Surrender to Christ. With every head bowed and every eye closed, over the last few weeks, we've heard some incredible stories of men and women coming to know Christ. And we've seen them being baptized. Not being baptized to be saved, but being baptized because of the work that the Lord has done in their life. And maybe that's you. Maybe in the past few weeks or past few years or maybe just in these past few moments, you've repented of your sins and believed in Jesus. And you want to come be baptized to publicly announce what God has done in your heart. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. If that's you and you want to be baptized, 
You can walk right through these curtains to my left, your right. There'd be some folks back there with some shorts, t-shirts, and towels. And they'd love to help you be baptized today. To demonstrate, just to help you be obedient to the Lord, to announce publicly what Jesus has done in your life. You've been born again. Maybe you're here with a friend and you just are nervous to go back by yourself. Ask them to go with you, not because they need to be baptized, but just as someone to accompany you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. I do love to teach the scripture, Lord. burns in my heart. Lord, as we come to the cross over the next few weeks, I pray that you would renew my awe of you, my wonder of you. I pray for our church, God, that in these moments that we would be stirred to greater worship of you, greater awe of you, And I pray that in this room and maybe those that are watching online, God, you would just begin to rescue men and women, that you would save people, Lord, in miraculous, shocking fashion where none of us will touch the credit or the glory. We'll just stand back and go, wow, look at what the Lord is doing. God, I ask for a fruitful season the gospel would go forth, Lord, in great power. You would save young men and women in this room today. Those that even, Lord, in the last few moments have been distracted, God, I pray that you would rescue them in a shocking fashion today. In Jesus' name.